you know, you shouldn't have to be perfect. You shouldn't have to be, you know, pristine in order to have sympathy or empathy as the victim of, um, you know, something that was harmful and, and violent. We all make mistakes. We all, you know, have our struggles in life. Um, but none of that makes us deserve to die in the streets. The day George Floyd was killed, a cashier had called 911 to say someone had tried to buy cigarettes at a store with a fake $20 bill. Four Minneapolis police officers responded. One of them handcuffed George Floyd. Another put his knee on his neck and kept it there. Floyd said he couldn't breathe. While all of this was happening, people on the street took out their phones. George Floyd was killed on video. The video went everywhere. Demonstrations set off all over the world. They protested the treatment of black people by police, and they protested the killing of George Floyd that day in Minneapolis. I'm D.A. Bullock. I'm a filmmaker. I live in North Minneapolis. The reason George Floyd's case became so famous or infamous is because we watched it real time. We watched the whole nine minutes play out. We watched his life go away in front of our eyes. I'm Reham Fashir, and I'm a reporter at NPR News. I'm one of several journalists who've been covering the story of George Floyd and the fallout of his death. We're going to bring you weekly updates on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the officer people saw with his knee on Floyd's neck. We'll explain how the trial has implications beyond the verdict and how Floyd's death changed how we talk about racism. Today, we'll talk about George Floyd and how his friends and family remember him. Let's start with his aunt, Angela Harrelson. She called him Perry. Um, Perry was, I mean, he was born and he stayed a little bit in North Carolina. But when his mother, they moved, they took him to Houston, where he pretty much grew up his teenager years. And I would say the young adult years of his life. My name is Aubrey Rhodes. We from the same neighborhood. We're from Third Ward, that's out of Houston, Texas, and it's like a support neighborhood, and we just came up from, uh, we, we used to play at the YMCA. He went to Yates High School. And there he was involved with a lot of sports. We was an incredible athlete in high school and college. He was All-American, All-American sport. He played basketball and football. You know, he's about six, seven. He carries us like a tree. Yeah, we with the parties and stuff like that. You know, we all we know we always from the same neighborhood, so we knew each other. He was just from the projects. I was from like down away from the projects. I'm not saying my, my nephew's perfect. I always tell people that, but um, people think when they see tall people, especially a tall black man, you know, people probably run. You know, you know, honestly, you know, he didn't use his height for intimidation. You know, he used it. You know. You know, he was proud, he was confident, but he always wanted to show people the gentle side. I just came to Minnesota just to change my life. And then I went home to visit my, my family for uh, for Christmas. Then I ran into George. Yeah, man, where you at? I said, I'm in Minnesota, man. Get, get my life together, man. What they do in Minnesota? I said, man, I went to a treatment program, and, and now I'm just trying to focus on my life. Saying the rest of my life, man. You man, I need to do something like that, man. What's your number? He say, man, I want to come, man. I try. I'm saying, so he can't write. He can't. My name is Wallace White. I work with the Minneapolis Mad Dads. 
We also helped the Salvation Army outside here. I met him at uh, Turning Point, which is a, a rehab facility. When I got there, he was there, and me and him, you know, kind of, they introduced you, like, in the morning times, and and we introduced each other, and we kind of hit it off real good. You know, at that time, he was at the, the end part of his his treatment, and uh, and we would catch each other, like, in the morning times. That's when he was working here. He had started working here then. I helped him get a job at the security office where I worked at, Salvation Army, where he ended up... Uh, then he had started, he found the, the job working at the club. He started doing that. So and then after that, he said he wanted to go to truck driving school. He talked about how back in Houston, he was, you know, kind of getting to be on the rough side, rough end things, you know. Oh, he was always, he should always say, yeah, he should, he should call me Wally. Man, Wally, oh, man, I'm so glad, man, I came up here, man, just, and uh, changed my life, man, you know. I would always encourage him, you know, man, to keep going and kind of keep on doing what he was doing because he was doing a good job at it. So we used to talk on an everyday basis, though. It was like, like every day. The day before he got killed, I talked to him right here. He parked and got out the car. We sat up there and talked. And uh, he was dressed nice, had on nice slacks and a sweater and, yeah. And I looked at my voicemail. They told me I had like 20-something messages. I'm like, oh, my God. And I started thinking, George, George. Oh, I said, George? And then I went, I think I called my sister. She said, have you heard? I said, I heard of something. I don't quite understand what's going on. Somebody called me that that morning and says, uh, hey, Wallace, uh, Somebody, one of your Facebook friends just got killed by the police. And I was like, huh? And I was like, who was it? He was like, uh, Floyd George. Uh, I was like, Floyd George? George Floyd? And he was like, yeah, that's his name. And I went, that day had sent the video. I looked at the video and I was like, I mean, I actually... It just, I started crying, you know, that was, was like, because I seen how that, that, you know, that police was doing him. And I kept coming closer and closer to the TV. I said, my God, that's him. You know, and I'm looking and he said, I can't breathe. And I'm in shock. I'm speechless. You know, and I'm coming and, and then I watched the whole thing. And when he said the part, mama, mama. I just dropped to my knees, huh? and I just fell, and I was just crying hysterically. I mean, I could not control. I was hysterically. I said, no. It was like a modern-day lynching, and I feel like this situation took us 400 years back. Just took us 400 years back. So they got a chance. I have to grieve with the world. And you know what? It does help me. It helps me um, get through it because it helped me when people say, well, I stand with you. And I don't even know these people. They didn't even know Perry, but they knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. And, you know, and so 
there needs to be a social change. If this is a time for a social change and for laws to change, this is the time now to do it. Unfortunately, my nephew had to lose his life for it, but because we have so much support around the world, this is the time for them to really, really do something about it. Many people did start to talk about racism differently after George Floyd was killed. If you were to publicly express your remorse, apologize to Kaepernick, what would you say? Well, I, the first thing I'd say is I wish we had listened earlier, uh, Cap, to what you were kneeling about and what you were trying to bring attention to. We'll talk about that next time. In Front of Our Eyes is hosted by me, John Collins, Nina Moyni, and Brent Williams. Our producers are Tiffany Hansen, Whitney Jones, and Ryan Lohr. Digital producers, Michael Olson and Nancy Yang. Technical director, Johnny Vince Evans. Our editor is Phyllis Fletcher. We'll give you updates every week on the trial of Derek Chauvin. From American Public Media and NPR News, I'm Reham Fishier.